0: The finality of death is perhaps one of the most disturbing aspects of the act. The idea that once it's over, it's over. It's something which is almost incomprehensible for the human mind. The idea that once our body ceases to function, our consciousness, the thing which we identify as ourselves stops being as well. It's a very horrible thing to think about, especially given consideration into how truly short our time here on Earth can be. Nothingness is a frightening thought, a thought which can be so daunting and so truly terrifying that we will look for any glimmer of hope that it's something we don't even need to consider. Any shard of hope, no matter how small, how difficult to grasp, is still better, a far greater comfort, than dealing with the idea that there's nothing for us after this. It's this fear, this unwillingness to accept that We are so finite, such a minuscule existence, that we will sometimes allow ourselves to be deluded by false hopes. False hope can come in many forms a faulty religion, being deluded by a personality's false claims of power, or Allowing oneself to push aside disbelief, toss aside gut instincts, and allow oneself to be soothed by trickery. From the very beginning, Daniel was different than the other children. He was born outside of the country, having emigrated to the United States from Scotland a little after his ninth birthday. He was also smaller than the other boys, prone to illness, and never seemed quite comfortable around those his own age. Another thing which set Daniel apart was that, unlike the other children around him, Daniel was not allowed to attend school. But, Though he had no formal education outside of the home, Daniel was incredibly brilliant, quick-witted, and was able to hold intelligent conversations with adults on a wide variety of topics. Daniel was also being raised by a single woman, his aunt, who had adopted him when he was just a baby. Daniel's birth mother had given him away in desperation after his father had left. Daniel's aunt was different as well. While the area they had settled into was known for its liberal attitudes, Daniel's aunt was very much set in the old ways. She was a very serious, no-frills deeply religious woman. She was incredibly strict with Daniel and often spoke to him and others in a very stern, almost scolding tone of voice. She wasn't very well liked amongst the children, which only made Daniel that much more of an outsider. Daniel also had another troubling issue, which caused him a great deal of anxiety. It contributed to his sickly demeanor and further alienated him from the other children. He was haunted by the past, not by events from his own past, but from spirits of the past. Daniel had what they called back in Scotland, the second sight. Daniel was tormented by things that others could not see or hear. His nights were filled with startling visits from those long since past, and he was kept awake by voices and strange rapping sounds coming from the walls. Scared to tell anyone, Daniel kept the events to himself, suffering and silence. When Daniel was 12, he finally managed to make a friend. His new friend not only accepted him, something which no one else had done before, but he also shared many of Daniel's interests, including his love of Gothic literature the two boys would spend their free time together in a hideaway in the woods, reading stories and theorizing on what awaited them in the great beyond. It was during one of these conversations that Daniel finally became brave enough to share with his friend the things that he'd been encountering for so many years during those long nights. He told his friend of the strange, almost transparent figures which would roam about his bedroom at night, the voices which would call out his name, and the incessant rapping noises which filled his ears for hours upon end. Daniel expected this confession to be met with mockery. But instead, he was surprised and rather relieved to see that this confession was met with acceptance. His friend, who knew about the spiritualist movement, not only believed Daniel, but offered him something which he had so longed for, for so many years. An explanation for why these things had been happening to him. The boy told Daniel that he believed the reason these things kept happening was that Daniel was a medium, which the spirits could sense. And having so few connections to reach out to the living, they flocked to Daniel in hopes of being able to reach out. While this explanation frightened Daniel, it also provided him with relief. Now, he finally had a name for what was happening to him. His friend also told him it was a special gift, something which very few people on earth possessed. He told Daniel that if he could learn to control it, and communicate with the things he saw and heard at night, he could become famous and even travel the world. An idea which appealed to Daniel as he so desired to escape the town he lived in and all the hurt it represented. It was at that moment that Daniel and his friend made a pact. The first one of them to pass over would appear to the other in spirit form as proof that the other side existed. It was a playful pact, but it was a pact that sadly would be brought to fruition all too soon. A year later, shortly after his 13th birthday, Daniel's friend, became gravely ill. One night, as Daniel was just beginning to fall asleep, he was startled by what sounded like someone calling out his name. The voice was oddly familiar, but Daniel was too shaken to be able to place a face to it. And just then, he noticed a strange orb of light floating by his window. He sat motionless, watching the orb as it floated across the room, stopping at the foot of his bed. The orb then began to shimmer and elongate, and before Daniel's eyes, his friend materialized. The boy smiled at him gave a small wave, and then disappeared. It was at that moment Daniel understood. His friend had passed on, but being true to his word, he stopped by to fulfill his end of that pact they had made the summer last. Daniel was deeply affected by the death of his friend. He became aloof and began suffering from a variety of ailments, more than likely due to bottling up his feelings. As the months progressed and his mood continued to darken, something else began to happen to Daniel. Something which would eventually change the course of his life. While Daniel struggled and continued to repress his emotions, his paranormal experiences began to intensify. The voices, visions, and rapping noises were no longer reserved for the night. Now... They were a constant occurrence. The experience soon became so overwhelming for Daniel that he began locking himself in his room. His aunt became so unnerved by this behavior that she sent for a physician. When the physician came to see Daniel, the boy was so worn down that he relented when asked what was bothering him. And he told the physician about the torture that he'd been experiencing the past few months. The physician, being a man of science, sternly told Daniel that the cause of his suffering was completely in his head. It wasn't spirits that were bothering him. It was a form of delirium brought about by grief. The doctor prescribed Daniel fresh air, plenty of exercise, and the broadening of his social circle. Well, none of this was what Daniel wanted to hear. He was surprisingly satisfied with the doctor's diagnosis. Perhaps it all was in his head. Perhaps his loneliness over the years and the sadness which it had brought about, perhaps it had caused him to lose touch with reality. Daniel's aunt, however, was not as accepting of the diagnosis. She was a deeply religious woman, and upon hearing the doctor's report of what Daniel had told him, she became convinced that Daniel's strange behavior was nothing modern medicine could remedy. She believed that the cause of Daniel's suffering was something far more severe. She believed that Daniel was in fact being possessed by demons. Frightened that her soul could be in danger as well, Daniel's aunt contacted not one, but three area priests begging for an exorcism. While all rejected her pleas for an exorcism, several of the priests contacted did agree to bless the home and speak with Daniel. Of course, Daniel's aunt wasn't satisfied to leave it at this and she decided to take matters into her own hands. She became even stricter with Daniel, forcing him to spend long hours reading from the Bible, and even went against the doctor's recommendations, forbidding him to leave the house. As you can imagine, this only worsened Daniel's condition. This type of control and isolation would be enough to drive anyone mad. But someone as fragile as Daniel already was, it was enough to break him. The voices and visions became worse and Daniel became convinced that he was losing his mind. His thoughts began turning darker and darker and just when he felt as though he could take no more something happened one night which would become a catalyst to saving his sanity and freeing him from his aunt's control one night when daniel was 15 he had the most peculiar vision he saw a woman in a white dress, enter his room. He immediately knew her to be his birth mother, even though he had no recollection of what she'd looked like. The woman spoke to him and said, Fear not, my child. God is with you. And who then shall be against you? She then went on to tell him what he had been experiencing was a gift, a gift which he would use to help the grief-stricken and heal the sick. Daniel woke up the next morning with a renewed sense of hope and purpose. However, the visit from his mother did more than just lift his spirits. It seemed to make his gift of mediumship even more powerful. And it did so in some rather terrifying ways. The day after the visit from his mother, Daniel was tormented by a new occurrence. Poltergeists. As soon as Daniel entered a room, all manner of strangeness would happen. Cupboards would open and shut. Items would fly off the shelves, and furniture began to levitate. At first, Daniel was terrified, and he was so taken aback by it that it screamed out for his aunt. And when she entered the room and saw the table floating a few feet off of the floor, Daniel's aunt went into hysterics. She begged him to stop, and when he cried telling her that he couldn't, she jumped on the floating table and attempts to weigh it down and stop the activity herself. For a brief moment, it seemed her actions worked, and everything stopped. Then, much to the aunt's dismay, not only did the table rise again, but it rose up even higher. All the while, she was still on top of it, screaming frantically. If Daniel's aunt had not been convinced before that he was hosting some demonic guests, she was now. After the table incident, she warned Daniel that if he didn't get himself under control and reject the evil which he was obviously hosting, that she would cast him out of the house and out of her life entirely. But instead of continuing to fear what was happening, after that moment, Daniel decided to see if he could control it instead. He began practicing controlling the events and even being able to bring them about on demand. Daniel also began rebelling against his aunt's strict rules, and he started leaving the house against her wishes. He began making friends and soon was wowing them by showing them what he could do. Before long, he was performing in front of small audiences wowing those in attendance with his uncanny ability to contact deceased loved ones and the bizarre acts of levitation he could perform. Within two years, Daniel had gained quite a following, and his popularity was growing beyond his small town. He soon found himself called upon to perform for wealthier members of society, all of whom came away convinced of Daniel's amazing ability. It was during this time that Daniel began experimenting with being able to bring about the rapping noises on demand. After hearing about the Fox sisters, he became convinced that these strange noises, which had plagued him for most of his life, were actually a means of spirit communication. One afternoon, not long after his 17th birthday, Daniel's aunt walked into the kitchen after returning from an outing and discovered him sitting at a chair in a trance-like state. There were loud knocking sounds coming from the walls, and various kitchen items seemed to be floating around him. It was at that point that she had finally had enough. Fully convinced that he had made some sort of pact with the devil and that his soul was lost, Daniel's aunt kicked him out of the house that very afternoon. Though he was only 17, with no money in his pocket, Daniel didn't struggle to find a place to live. Since he'd become such a celebrity amongst the spiritualist circle, there were many who were more than happy to offer him lodging in exchange for his séance services. Within a year's time, Daniel Douglas Hume would become one of the most well-known names in spiritualism and one of the most famous mediums in history. His powers were uncanny, and he could not only call upon spirits and practice levitation, but he could also materialize objects. Though he claimed That he never charged a fee for his seance services. Daniel, nonetheless, enjoyed quite a lavish lifestyle. His wealthy benefactors not only offered him lodging, but they also gifted him with clothing, pocket money, and travel opportunities. By the age of 22, Daniel had become a full-blown celebrity and was traveling all over the United States giving performances and wowing audiences. During this time, Daniel also caught the attention of many skeptics as well. And because of this, he received many invitations to perform at universities in front of scientists. Daniel, who said he had nothing to hide, always accepted such invitations. He performed at many universities in front of many prominent figures in the field, and not a single one could ever determine exactly how Daniel was able to produce what he did. Because of this, many viewed him as legitimate. Some who witnessed these events, like Judge John Worth Edmonds, who was a judge for the New York Supreme Court, took this attitude a step further and saw Daniel as absolute proof of the validity of spiritualism as a whole. As none of the investigations could ever prove him a fraud, Daniel's reputation as a medium soared to new heights. He was particularly favored by society's elite, and he would spend up to 10 hours a day holding seances and entertaining some of the biggest names and most powerful members of American society. And although he was enjoying his celebrity status and all the comforts it afforded, the stress from working so many long hours seven days a week began to take a toll on Daniel's already fragile health. By 23, Daniel began feeling exhausted all the time, and he had developed a rather troubling cough. Worried for his health, Daniel sought out a physician and soon received a diagnosis that he was not prepared for. Daniel had contracted tuberculosis, a disease which back then was often a sure death sentence. The doctor recommended that the best course of treatment would be to travel to Europe and enjoy the fresh seaside air. At the time, fresh air, especially air close to a body of salt water, was considered to be the best treatment for TB. When told of his condition, Daniel's wealthy benefactors were sympathetic and eager to do what they could to help. Soon, with gifts of new clothes, pocket money, and summer houses to stay in, Daniel was soon off to the English seaside. But instead of taking it easy, Daniel continued with his spiritual mission of offering healing to the grief-stricken and sick. As soon as Daniel arrived, word spread, and within days, he was spending his time performing for England's high society. It seemed that the seaside air did more for Daniel than just easing his cough. While in England, Daniel's powers seemed to strengthen substantially he would astonish those in attendance of his seance performances with the strange phenomenon he could produce. While Daniel was in trance, a cool breeze would pass through the room right before a spirit made its appearance. Daniel could channel spirits on demand. And while he channeled them, his body would change in appearance, almost as if to match the person he was contacting. Audience members would gasp as his body seemed to elongate or shrink based on the spirit communicating through him. He could summon orbs of light which would float through the theater. But the most amazing and eerie of his abilities was the materialization of spirit hands. It was a most peculiar phenomenon, one which, before Daniel, had never been seen before. During his trances, Daniel could not only materialize knocking sounds that spirits would communicate through, but he could also materialize the spirit hands that made them. As those in the audience listened, enthralled by the loud knocks which happened once or twice to correspond with a yes or no answer, they would gasp in disbelief as the hands making the noises suddenly materialized. The hands were described by those in attendance as being quite pale, but otherwise appearing as any other human hand. With one distinct difference, of course. The hands did not seem to be attached to an arm, let alone a body. They stopped neatly at the wrist. The hands didn't just knock on tables, they also interacted with those in attendance. They could be quite the playful characters, tapping on shoulders, lightly shoving a person from behind, and even offering those who were brave enough a hearty handshake. One English journalist in attendance during such an event later reported that he shook hands with one of the spirit hands and was taken by how lifelike it felt. Though cold and a bit clammy feeling, the hand otherwise seemed to be like any other human hand. However, being a curious man by nature, he wasn't satisfied with leaving it at that. He held on to the hand and marveled as it seemed to struggle for a moment in attempts to break free, but after a moment, it seemed to relent and allowed the journalist to inspect it further. He claimed to have turned the hand over, moved the fingers, and watched as it made a fist and then relaxed. Still. He was not satisfied, and he grew even more curious. At one point, the journalist claimed he pushed his thumb into the hand's palm, and to his surprise, he watched as his thumb passed through and came out the other side. The hand showed no evidence of injury, and when he removed his thumb, the only evidence left behind was a slight scar. As the journalist attempted to examine this closer, the hand suddenly dematerialized, disappearing right before his eyes. The journalist concluded in his article that he had no doubt in his mind that D.D. Hume and the wonders he could produce were indeed legitimate. While Daniel's celebrity status and devoted fan base grew in England, he also gained the attention of a few outspoken critics. There were those in the scientific community who believed wholeheartedly that Daniel was a fraud and a con artist, and they were determined to expose him. The most relentless of his critics was Frank Podmore, an author and active member of the New Society for Psychical Research in London. Podmore believed that Daniel's abilities could be attributed to simple magic tricks, slate of hand, and the use of mirrors to create illusions. However, as loud as his critics were, they never seemed to be able to produce enough proof to convince the public that Daniel was anything other than what he said he was. In fact, it was his critics' inability to provide a straightforward example as to how Daniel was able to produce the things he did that made him more popular and attractive in the eyes of his audience. In fact, this caught the attention of Europe's royalty and Daniel soon found himself a guest in many great palaces across Europe. He frequented the palaces of Napoleon III German Emperor Ludwig II, the Queen of Holland, and many members of the Russian royal court. Napoleon III was particularly fascinated by Daniel and requested his presence on numerous occasions. Napoleon was mesmerized by the spirit hands which Daniel could produce And it was in his presence that some of the more memorable occurrences with this phenomenon took place. During his first seance with Daniel, a spirit hand materialized in front of Napoleon's wife, the Empress, and it gently took her hand. The Empress, upon looking at the hand, cried out in shock. It wasn't that she was afraid of what was happening. It was what she noticed about that hand that made her cry out. The Empress stated that the hand had the exact same finger deformity as her mother had in life. The second occurrence involving the spirit hands and the one which made Napoleon III a firm believer, happened about during a particularly unusual seance. During the seance, Daniel seemed to be in an abnormally deep trance-like state, and he spoke very little. As Napoleon and the others sat in eerie silence, they shuddered as a cool breeze filled the room. Then, as the breeze subsided, some of those in attendance gasped as a hand suddenly materialized. It seemed to float along the table. Then, it stopped near the middle, where there was a pen and some paper. The hand then grabbed the pen, dipped it, in the inkwell and began scrawling on the sheet of paper. The hand then gently placed the pen back in its holder, picked up the paper, floated several feet above the table, then dropped the paper as it dematerialized. When the paper landed on the table, Napoleon grabbed it up and examined it. His heart quickened as he read what the hand had written. It was a signature. The name, Napoleon, scrawled about with an elaborate flourish at the end. It was an exact replica of the signature of Napoleon Bonaparte, otherwise known as Napoleon I. Another royal fan of Daniel was Ludwig II, Germany's slightly eccentric emperor who was known among his people as the Swan King. Ludwig was known to dabble in spiritualism and would often employ mediums such as Daniel to help him contact departed friends and family and to get their input on decisions, namely... Involving his many artistic projects. Daniel won Ludwig over with his many astonishing abilities, but most notably, his ability to levitate himself. Daniel could, on command, when deep in trance, levitate himself several feet off the ground. At times, even being able to float around the room while he did so. When he was in this state, his hands were said to emit a soft glow, as if he was being lifted by the spirits themselves. This was an act neither Ludwig or his spiritualist friends in attendance had ever seen before. This act alone made Daniel a favorite with Ludwig, and he would often invite him to gatherings so that he can impress those in attendance with Daniel's unusual feats. 1855 was an incredibly exhausting, yet fulfilling year for Daniel. He had made friends with some of the world's most powerful leaders, achieving that childhood dream of having a higher social status. He also led a rich social life and thoroughly enjoyed all of the luxuries and perks having such powerful benefactors brought about. However, as the year wore on, Daniel, found himself involved in scandal. More people began going public in attempts of outing him as a fake, including respected scientist David Brewster and poet and playwright Robert Browning. The scorn on both men's behalf towards Hume was deeply personal which made their attacks against him all the more impassioned. In the case of renowned scientist David Brewster, he was publicly humiliated after attending a seance led by Daniel. Earlier that year, Lord Brougham had invited David Brewster to attend a seance led by Daniel so that they could both judge for themselves if Daniel was employing trickery or if he was indeed the legitimate medium that so many claimed him to be. It was reported that while observing the phenomenon produced by Daniel, Brewster was said to have been so astonished by what he saw that he exclaimed, This upsets the philosophy of 50 years. He then supposedly acknowledged to those in attendance and to Daniel that he believed Daniel's powers were indeed legitimate. It was a statement which Brewster believed would remain in confidence. He was horrified when weeks later, An article was released that detailed the event and prominently featured that quote alongside his name. For David Brewster, news of a man such as himself attending a seance would not only make him a laughing stock amongst his peers, it would potentially destroy all that he had worked so hard to build with his career. Angered, he contacted the papers, accused them of defamation, and demanded that a full detailed account of his experience of that day be published in the next edition. David Brewster's account in the new article told a very different story of what happened that night, and plainly stated his disbelief and disdain for spiritualism. In the article, when describing what he thought of the event, Brewster stated, I saw enough to satisfy myself that they could all be produced by human hands and feet. Rather than believe that spirits made the noise, I will conjecture that the raps were produced by Mr. Hume's toes. And rather than believe that spirits raised the table, I will conjecture that it was done by the agency of Mr. Hume's feet, which were always below it. Writing on David Brewster's account of the seance, poet and playwright Robert Browning released a 2,000-line poem entitled Mr. Sludge, the Medium. The poem was an incredibly lengthy jab at Daniel. You see, Browning had a vendetta against Daniel as well, and it too was a matter of honor, so to speak. You see, Browning's wife, Elizabeth, had fallen for the charismatic medium, and Robert Browning was furious. Both David Brewster and Robert Browning were able to create enough of a stir with their published works that more and more people began contacting magazines and newspapers claiming proof that Daniel was indeed a fraud. This period was obviously very stressful for Daniel, and he soon fell back into ill health. He withdrew from the public and only conducted private seances for his benefactors in trade for room and board. During this period, Daniel had a very unsettling vision where a spirit appeared to him and informed him that his gift of mediumship would be taken from him. The Spirit said that he was to reconnect with his faith, and if after one year's time he had done so and proved himself to be a man of faith, the gift would then return. True to its word, the Spirit's prediction proved correct and Daniel soon lost all of his mediumship abilities. For the first time in his life, he no longer heard strange voices or saw strange figures during the night. It was just gone. Gone, too, were his abilities to lead a seance, to levitate, or to produce any materializations. Just like that, Daniel's livelihood was gone. He gathered what pocket money he had, collected what belongings could be stuffed into a single suitcase, and he set out for Rome. There, his notoriety was able to grant him an audience with Pope Pius IX. where he told the Pope of his desire to convert to Catholicism and to reside in a monastery. The Pope, excited at the prospect of converting such a well-known spiritualist and what the publicity of this could potentially do for the church, happily agreed to the idea. So. For the next year, Daniel happily lived the pious life of a monk. Then, just as the Spirit had said, once faith had been restored and proven, Daniel woke up one day to find that both his health and mediumship abilities had been restored. Upon his healing, Daniel didn't waste any more time sticking around the monastery, and he left for America. From there, Daniel was able to mingle with some of his old contacts, and once again began touring as a medium. Though this time around, he didn't encounter the same type of luxuries he was accustomed to, and he struggled finding benefactors who were willing to support him. By 1867, Daniel had fallen on hard times. He relocated back to England and tried a number of ways of earning income outside of spiritualism, but all had fallen short. So when he encountered the wealthy 75-year-old widow, Mrs. Lyon, he was sure his luck was about to change. Mrs. Lyon had become a patron of Daniel's after he was able to make contact with her late husband. Daniel soon found himself conducting weekly seances with her. And during one seance, Mrs. Lyon's husband came through and suggested that they adopt Daniel as a son, making him heir to their fortune. Well, Mrs. Lyon agreed and soon had paperwork drawn up for the adoption. Her only condition was that Daniel change his last name to Lyon, which he did. Once the paperwork was complete, Mrs. Lyon transferred a sum of £60,000 into Daniel's name and also made him the sole beneficiary of her will. All was seemingly going well until, mysteriously, six months later, Daniel and Mrs. Lyon had a falling out. And Mrs. Lyon not only removed him from her will, but she also sued him for the return of the money she transferred in his name. The case went to court, and though Mrs. Lyon seemed disoriented throughout most of the proceedings and, at times, borderline mentally unstable, the judge patiently listened to her testimony. Mrs. Lyon told the court that she had been tricked by Daniel, who supposedly pretended to contact her husband in order to manipulate her into giving him money and adding him to her will. She also told an astonished court that her relationship with Daniel was anything but platonic, and that Daniel had seduced her. The judge, having heard enough, ruled in Mrs. Lyon's favor, scolding Daniel By saying that he detested spiritualism and those like him, whose, and I quote, mischievous nonsense well calculated the one hand to delude the vain, the weak, the foolish, and the superstitious. After the debacle with Mrs. Lyon, Daniel lost a lot of his supporters and found himself once again the center of scandal and, once again, battling accusations of fraud. It was sadly something which he was never able to fully recover from. And, a few years later, with his health once again failing, Daniel Douglas Hume left the public eye and spiritualism altogether. In 1886, Daniel Douglas Hume died of complications from tuberculosis. While his career ended in scandal, Daniel Douglas Hume is still considered one of the most renowned psychics, not only of the spiritualist movement, but In history altogether. During his time, Daniel was never publicly proven to be fraudulent. And it was said that there simply was not a person out there who could prove beyond a doubt that Daniel's abilities were anything other than legitimate. Of course, There is another side to the story of Daniel Douglas Hume. While those who spoke of his fraudulence were often pushed to the side due to lack of strong evidence, there were still many during his time that firmly believed him to be a fraud. During one of those famous meetings with Napoleon III, there was a man in attendance who claimed to have witnessed Daniel using his feet to lift tables to give them the appearance of levitating. He also claimed that the spirit hands were nothing more than Daniel's feet. And while that may seem really silly, thinking that someone could be tricked into thinking a foot was a hand, there is apparently... Some merit to that one. There were many others who said the same thing of Daniel's spirit hands. There are many people who attended private seances with Daniel who claimed to have seen him slip off his shoes underneath the table. And while those in attendance were distracted by the knocking noises he was making, he was able to discreetly slip a stuffed glove over a foot. There were others still who said that Daniel made use of false limbs during his performances. The hands resting on the table would be false, which would allow him to use his real hands for table lifting, knocking noises, and even employing his own hands as those mysterious Spirit hands. It was alleged that his levitation and body lengthening were all accomplished using mirrors. There were also a few stage magicians who would put on shows which were similar to the feats of D.D. Hume, all in attempts to debunk spiritualism. The strange thing is, Many of these magicians began being accosted by Hume supporters, often having their sets tampered with, even destroyed. To this day, it's uncertain whether Hume himself had any role in this or not. There's no denying that Daniel Hume had friends in high places, and it did seem that during the height of his fame, Almost all of those who spoke out against him were fiercely discredited or swept under the rug altogether. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you enjoyed hearing the strange tale of Daniel Douglas Hume.